Brought to you by DKP and Code Chartered Accountants and Aspire Planning Group, Football Bosses, with Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata on FNR Football Nation Radio. Welcome to the Football Bosses, Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata with you for another week, uh, Tony. Great show lined up. Uh, Benita Mercedes, who was uh, formerly the head of corporate affairs at the Football Federation Australia uh, when this uh, FIFA bid for the World Cup was going on, uh, will join us to talk about her new book. It's called Whatever It Takes. It launches on the 5th of February, and we get a special uh, insight uh, coming up on the show when we talk to Benita about uh, about this fascinating uh, scandal which has broken out over the last few years. It'll be interesting read. I know she's been working on it for a long, long time. I think she's put it in a, the bottom drawer for a while and taken it out and then was asked to put it back through uh, various injunctions, etc. So she's finally uh, releasing the book and I think there's going to be um, a lot of information. Just extraordinary some of the stuff that's coming out. Uh, the fact that Sepp Blatter had said that you know we'd never had a chance uh, despite the fact that uh, the Australian government and the sport contributed $50 million towards this bid and uh, it, it really uh, has bringing the brought the game into disrepute uh, and asked a lot of questions of the governing body at the time and and the processes in place at FIFA uh, when it comes to bidding for a World Cup. Yeah, and what irks me is, the, you know, the use of consultants. They were paid millions and millions of dollars out of that $50 million for, for what? What was the benefit? One vote. And, you know, reading some stuff online, it wasn't even Franz Beckenbauer vote. It was actually Sepp Blatter. So it would be interesting to ask Benita about that you know, she actually asked in, and why did Sepp Blatter, why did he vote for us? And we'll keep the Sydney FC theme going on this show. We know it's a consistent one, given your connections there, but uh, we know our fans, uh, a lot of them uh, from Sydney, love listening to uh, your do. your boys from Sydney. Terry McFlynn will join us. He's the boss of uh, football operations there, and we'll get an insight from Terry as to just how it works behind the scenes in trying to attract some of these great players. It's an interesting conversation with him, especially given that what's coming up for them in the Asian Champions League, uh, they have some football decisions to make around which foreigners uh, they name as part of that squad. There, there's some speculation that Sydney may announce an, an, another player into the squad soon as well. And uh, a player like Adrian Mijajewski and uh, Milos Ninkovic and Bobo, how do you attract that type of talent? I know you were involved with uh, with Bobo in, in particular and, and Milos Ninkovic, but uh, getting these players to these shores has been uh, certainly a, a blessing for the A-League uh, over the last couple of seasons and seeing this sort of talent uh, here at, uh, has been terrific. No, look, they've got a strong squad assembled. And, and one thing about Sydney FC and what they have done in the last few years is keep that stability, keep that core players. They've added, OK, they've lost Bernie Abini, they lost Vukovic, uh, Holosko, but Mizieski came in, they've, they've recruited. Um, and you can see from last year to this year in a continuation where other clubs um, have lost players, haven't re, re I suppose built their squads and um, you know hasn't uh, hasn't worked for them and and there is that theme of stability and if you have stability in anything it does lead to success so it'll be interesting to uh, speak to Terry about you know he's got a, a quite a few players to sign up um, he's got the Champions League coming up and how it, it all works together. All right, so Terry McFlynn to join us after the break here on the Football Bosses. Here comes the money. Here we go. Brought to you by DKP and Code Chartered Accountants and Aspire Planning Group. Football Bosses with Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata on FNR Football Nation Radio. Welcome back to the Football Bosses here on FNR. Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata with you for another week. And uh, we've been speaking about successful clubs uh, over the history of the A-League. And uh, at the moment, Sydney FC uh, challenging the great Brisbane Raw side. Uh, Tony, I know that uh, it's a team very close to your heart, spending uh, what, five years there as the CEO. And one of the men who's in charge of uh, football operations at uh, Sydney FC is Terry McFlynn, of course, a former footballer himself and the captain of the club and and a great name uh, with Sydney FC. And we thank him for uh, joining us on the line tonight, Terry. Uh, congratulations on the season so far. We just wanted to get some insight from you uh, tonight on uh, the football bosses about you know the workings behind the scene and, and what it takes to, to bring such a squad together. 
Hey, Michael. Hey, Johnny. How are you? Good, Terry. Talk to us about this season firstly. You must be uh, over the moon with uh, how uh, things are progressing, especially after your successful season last campaign. Yeah, look, things are tracking well at the minute. Um, you know, we're only up to round 19 this weekend, so um, still a lot of work to do. The boys are um, working hard every day, um, and you know, as the boss says, we're getting better and better uh, each week and building into... Um, the penultimate end of the season and then uh, will it be a successful Champions League campaign as well and when's, uh, when's the uh, Champions League when's your first game Terry uh, we got 14th of February uh, at home uh, the playoffs actually tonight so um, we'll be watching that with interest to see who we get um, so yeah well, it's a competition we're really looking forward to Tony yeah look I know um been involved a couple of seasons ago. It's um, it's it's tough. It's tough on the A League teams, given the amount of travel they've got to do and back it up on weekends. And uh, has the fixturing helped this year? Has FFA sort of come to the party a little bit? I know was we had a lot of discussions um, just to make it easier for the teams competing in the Champions League. Yeah, they have, Tony. Um, I think yourself as the CEO at the time and the other CEOs that, that went to the um, FFA and. All the clubs put their cases forward. You know, the good thing about the FFA is they've listened. Um, there's two split lines this year, and uh, we've been very um, fortunate with the draw as well. The way the home and away games have worked out, that every time we've been, uh, every time we're drawn away in Asia, when we get back to Australia, we've got a home game. So, I think you might recall we had a couple of away games to Melbourne and to Central Coast the last campaign, Tony, which, as you said, adds into. Uh, recovery time and preparation time for the players um, so for us uh, we couldn't have asked for anything more and it, it's, we're thankful to the FFA first and foremost for the split rounds um, but then also the way the AFC draw has worked out with also the A-League draw that, like I said we got them home games on the back of away ACL games Terry, can you give us an insight into the financial implications for uh, the Asian Champions League or, or even the burden on Australian clubs for participating in the Asian Champions League? It's something that we spoke about last week with Brisbane Raw and their performance uh, uh, in their playoff and, and the crowd figures they got there and uh, and how disappointing that night was all round. I know in the early years especially it was, uh, it was a financial burden on clubs and even if they made it through past the group stages, they were still losing money. Uh, yep. Has that is that improved at all for Australian clubs participating in this co- competition? I think, to be honest, Elvis, that all depends on, on how far into the competition you go. Obviously, uh, AFC have, have recognised that and increased the prize money now. So, um, yeah, look, I think the, the deeper into the competition you go, the more financially successful it becomes um, for the clubs. Um, throughout the group stages, obviously, there's the financial implications of your travel and there's been a little change to the rules um, this season whereas in, in previous years the home team um, paid for the away team's accommodation uh, which obviously being in Sydney accommodation um, can be quite expensive so thankfully that's a cost that we don't have to bear this time so obviously when we're going to uh, Japan or China or Korea the, the cost of of hotels and uh, logistics is a little bit cheaper than they are in Australia. So um, from that side of it, uh, AFC have recognised as well that for clubs to be um, financially sufficient in the, the competition, they need to address that as well. Yeah, I remember, um, Terry, there was... Um, yeah, that's, I'm glad that's happened because it was uh, a big burden on the Australian clubs when um, teams you know, came over and we had to pay for the referees accommodation, their meals all the team's meals, um, their accommodation so I'm glad that's sort of uh, sorted out but uh, yeah it is a financial burden um, we were lucky enough I think the last campaign to draw um, the you know, Ural Reds and uh, and Guangzhou Evergrande we got some, some great crowds and um, you know we went deep into the you know sort of second round just missed out on on the quarters and uh, I think financially we did okay with on the back of sponsorship and etc but we were quite lucky when you talk about sponsorship Terry and I know it's an area that's uh, not your key focus but uh, you know how how important is it to the club and and how how much of a selling point it is it playing in Asia is it something that uh, you know the guys that are running sponsorship and the CEO uh, clearly focused on in, in terms of building the brand uh, in Asia yeah, look, it's, a, it's another point of difference, really, to be honest, up is in terms of your 
um, brand exposure in a new market. Um, and when you, you talk about the, the television numbers and the actual viewership across the ACL, it's a great selling point um, for us as a brand to align ourselves with a new sponsor solely for that competition and for that um, stage that we're on. And it's also a great stage for the players. Um, so when you talk about financial revenues in terms of sponsorship and marketability, um, it's also a stage where the players are in the shop window. Um, and you know, for one of these clubs in Asia, with no salary cap, with no, uh, at times it seems like limitless funds, for them to come and pay a transfer fee for a player from the A-League, um, and that player receives a, a healthy salary as well. It's a win-win for everyone. We've seen it recently uh, in Melbourne here with uh, Mark Milligan. Uh, he's been a bit of a cash cow for Melbourne Victory. It's uh, not the first time that uh, they've taken uh, a pretty nice uh, transfer fee from uh, from Saudi Arabia in particular. Is that something that uh, you know, you've had to deal with uh, over your time at Sydney FC? And I suppose that one of the interesting debating points is you know, when does it become a football decision and, and when is it a financial decision? Because Melbourne Victory put out a statement a few days ago saying uh, an offer has been put on the table for Mark Milligan. Um, we rejected that offer and he is a required player and we want to keep him here at the club. And uh, I, I bet they're kicking themselves now for, for putting that statement out because uh, it does contradict what has happened a few days later. Um, and I suppose the financial uh, carrot uh, that was dangled by the Saudi Arabian club uh, was far too great for even uh, Kevin Musket uh, to, to resist uh, when, when going to the chairman. And ultimately it becomes uh, the chairman uh, making that decision, I'd imagine, Terry. Yeah, look, it's always... Uh an interesting discussion and, and I'm sure Tony's had a lot more than than I have a, around this but it's you know how it works um, Terry there don't you <laughs> sorry you know how it works at Senior C Terry yeah yeah so um, <laughs> yeah look it's, all, it's always interesting topics because first and foremost um, it's about winning trophies and winning uh, football games but ultimately it's a business as well and in Australian football one of your main assets are your players and the more success you have or the more valuable other people deem them assets um, the more of a return you'll get on it so um, for us you know we have a, a process we go through um, football decision the impact it'll have on the team the impact it'll have on performance and results um, and weigh up the financials in and around it if it's an offer that um, you know is not too good to be true but an offer that we we possibly feel we can't exceed in the future then it becomes a business decision. But ultimately, the, the first and foremost question is in, in around football and performance. Yeah, I mean, I remember last season we had Ninko come to us and saying he had a massive offer to go to Qatar. He really yeah. wanted to go. It was good money for him. Um, yeah, he just signed a, a two-year deal. He was in his first season, and uh, we rejected it. And we basically said to, to, to Milos that you're not going anywhere. I mean, very, very valuable player. And I think that if we had let him go... We wouldn't have uh, won the championship or the uh, or the grand final, and uh, ultimately it is a, a decision by the chairman. And um, I know at Sydney, um, Scott Barlow will make that decision. But in the end, it's about financials. And if we get the right figure, as as we did with uh, Danny Vukovic, for example, then. Uh, yep. You've got to make that uh, decision. But that's also a football decision. You know, with Danny Vukovic, he was an outstanding goalkeeper, but you, you could replace him with uh, with a goalkeeper of, of equal standing, whereas with Milos Ninkovic, he's a special player. Yeah. And even if you had money in the bank, would you find another special player uh, such as, as Milos Ninkovic? And uh, I it's suppose... Also, it's also timing, because um, you know Danny had come after the season had finished. We had just won everything, so it comes down to timing. And, uh, yeah. and I know from, you know, with Melbourne Victory, their first offer was 300 US. They weren't going to accept that for uh, for for Mark, and then uh, they upped it to 600 US. And then they thought, well, okay, well, we'll take that. Plus, they're saving, up, I think, like 70 grand a month anyhow on his wages, so they can, uh, you know, they've got a marquee spot available as well now. Um, yeah, I think the, the timing, the timing things. Yeah. What Tony puts on there, the timing's the the biggest issue. So if it's like with Danny Vukovic, as Tony said. We had time to find a replacement, and uh, we had all the confidence in, in Andrew Redman to, to step up and to do what he's doing this season. So the January window is always the, the most difficult one, um, and especially when it's you know, today's the 30th, the window closes tomorrow. So to lose one of your, your main players, um, 
24 hours out from a window that closes where you can't replace them um, is a really difficult situation. And, and Terry, it's also about the individual as well and, you know, the... You know, if they want to go, they can make it really tough in the dressing room as well, and you've got to balance that out. Um, you know, from a from a club point of view, and um, you know, I'm not saying that, that you know, Milos did last year; he accepted it. But uh, you know, there are players that will, uh, uh, you know, sort of jump up and down, and and I'm not saying Mark Milligan as well. But you know, you've got to balance that as as well, and when you're making yeah, your decision. Yeah, I think exactly right, Tony. What you said, and I think it's how you communicate it, and the communication to to Milos last season was that you know you did the communication so you know maybe the, the club had made a commitment to, to Milos and he had made the commitment the contract was there and we were on the verge of something special and you know Milos went on to, to do what he did and showed everyone the player that we all knew he was internally and um, got his just rewards in his upgraded contract to Marquis status well, you're on the verge of something special again this season, Terry. I'd love to just uh, talk to you and pick your brain a little bit for our listeners on uh, how you attract this talent and, and how you retain them. We've touched on it with what you did with Ninkovic last year, but it's extraordinary this year to to think that uh, we're not even talking about Milos Ninkovic. He's not even in the conversation this year. We're all uh, excited about uh, Bobo and, of course, uh, Adrian Mijajewski, who have been outstanding. Bobo on the weekend broke uh, the record for the most goals scored by Sydney. FC player in any one season and there's still plenty of football to be played and uh, and we've all been impressed by the uh, the attributes that uh, Mirzajewski uh, brings to the table. Can you talk to us about how, how you identify those two in particular? Um, we do a lot of a lot of work behind the scenes and Tony can tell you that and every club's the same um, Michael to be honest it, you get on inundated with players um, sent through from from agents, from other clubs, from presidents, from sporting directors. Um, and the, the great thing for us now is that, that the A-League is getting notoriety across the world. And players um, of that caliber and that standing now want to come and play in the A-League and be part of it. Um, I think the Asian Champions League is a big uh, card for a lot of these players, but especially the European boys, that it's something different. Like, for example, Milos Ninkovic who played in the European Champions League. Um, Adrian has played in both. Um, so it's, it's a new adventure for them. It's a new um, way of life, if you like. Um, some things they, they have to get used to, obviously, is the salary cap. So when you when you are negotiating negotiate with players coming from an open market and a free non-salary cap environment, it's sometimes difficult for them to understand um, that the amount of money available is for everyone. So that's that's one of the main things. But it, I think it's just taking time um, and going through uh, what's been sent through. And if they've been sent through, then there's a genuine interest from, from them to come. Um, and it's identifying the way that we play, identifying um, the roles within our team and the person that's in that position at the minute and will what's on offer strengthen your team and if it's worth pursuing or not. So, it's, again, it just comes down to time and, and effort and We've got a great analysis team um, that spend a lot of time and a lot of effort, uh, like I say, sifting through these hundreds and hundreds of players. I'm not asking this to be cheeky, but who you've got two marquees. Uh, I don't, who are the marquees? Bobo's the one, and is Adrian uh, the other, or is it uh, Ninkovic? No, Milos Ninkovic. So you've had to fit Adrian in, into your salary cap, which I'd imagine would be a, a difficult uh, challenge, given what he's shown us so far this season. It was a real challenge, to be honest with us. Um, we were very fortunate with Adrian that um, he's got two young children. Um, we're a family club, as Tony will tell you. Um, we sell family as a, a big value to us, and we, <clears throat> it's something that, that we pride ourselves on. Um, so that, that side of the club really appealed to Adrian. Um, you know, it's well documented. Adrian signed a three-year contract, so he was after stability and commitment uh, for his family. We showed him that commitment in, in terms of a three-year contract um, and that offered him and his wife stability in Australia. So, yeah, it was a, it was a challenge to fit him in, um, particularly where he was coming from, firstly Saudi Arabia and then the UAE last season. Um, but we knew his quality and we knew that um, the good thing for us, and we've identified this over the 
13 years of the A-League that foreign players get better the second year. I've yeah. seen that with, with Milos Ninkovic. We see it so this season with Bobo. So last season he, he performed really well, but this season he's, he's doing what we saw on the on the footage. He saw what we analysed, um, particularly this time of Pesiktas, when he was there for eight seasons. He was obviously settled and that was um, home for him. So we knew that the second season we, we could expect bigger and better things from him and he's delivering. Yeah, he has certainly delivered. He's uh, he's been outstanding, and uh, I'd be surprised if he doesn't uh, win a few awards come the end of the season. Now, just on the Asian Champions League, uh, I think about now you need to make a decision on the three foreigners. Do those three pick themselves? Uh, it's Arnie's decision. <laughs> um, I think that's a, that's going to be the hardest decision I think in uh, possibly the club's history. So, you know, as Arnie said before, we probably got. No, I don't like to speak about all the clubs, but for me, they're probably the four best foreigners uh, in competition. Because, of course, you've got Yodi Bose as well, uh, who's is a key part of uh, your defence. Yeah, like I said, it's, um, it's going to be a, a difficult decision for the boss. Um, but you know, that's the rules, unfortunately, that we can't control them, and, and AFC have got the, the rules that we must abide by. And, um, not just yet, but the decision will be made soon. Yeah, and uh, Arnie did uh, mention in uh, our post-game interview on Fox that uh, there might be another signing to come uh, in the next few days, and uh, he asked us to watch this space. Uh, can you confirm that uh, that will be the case this week? Yeah, I love when Arnie says that because then my phone doesn't stop. <laughs> um, look, yeah, we're looking at one or two. Obviously, the window is closing in 24 hours. We've got a, a couple of things. Um, out there at the minute so um, we're always looking to, to strengthen the squad and like I said before when we're doing recruitment and we're looking at things we'll look at areas where if a player's going to enhance the dressing room enhance the squad and enhance the performance and if, if we can tick them three boxes in um, with, with the Asian Champions League, you have a, a plus one available to you for for an Asian player, so you could have your three European foreigners, if you like, or South Americans, but you can have an, an Asian player on top of that. Is that something that uh, you'd be looking at uh, in the next 24 hours, or can we expect a, an Australian-based player? Oh, look, we've, we've discussed all possibilities, to be honest. Uh, the situation with the Asian players, if they're off contract in the Asian market, you can send them outside the the window anyway so um, if we're to move if in the next 24 hours it would have to be Australian um, so the, the Asian thing we still have a little bit of time um, if, if we were to go that route Terry um, there's no uh, transfers or loan within the A-League and it's something that we've uh, been pushing uh, I know clubs have for a while do you think it's imperative that it comes in that eventually that there is transfer and, and loans between A-League clubs because at the moment you know, you just seeing clubs terminating players, and the next day, you know, Kilkenny, Karuska, you know, there's heaps yeah. of examples, and it's the way. Unfortunately, it's got to happen. But uh, I'd like to see that in in time that the A League does introduce transfers and, and loans between clubs. What's uh, what's your view on on that? No, I'm 100% with you, Tony. I think as football grows and evolves, um, it'll just fall in line with the rest of the world. So there's loan systems and transfer fees across the world, we're already at a disadvantage with the, the salary cap. Um, so to have no transfer fees and loans, for example, just exactly what you said, you can terminate your contract with a club one day and turn up at another club the next day. Now, the club might want to get that player off the books, another club might want to sign him, the player wants to move so everyone's happy. But it's, it's just a way of not covering up mismanagement of your group but it's a, it's a loophole so if you the two clubs were to sit down and even if it's a nominal fee and you can recoup part of the player's salary that you paid them for that season um, then at least it's a, it's a better financial model than uh, it didn't work out you rip up your contract and walk out the door um, so I think it's I think it will take time to, to bring it in obviously we need to make sure the clubs are financially sustainable in order to maintain that Um but I think the loan system will probably come in before transfers. Um, I think particularly in, in this period of time where clubs will be experiencing injuries and possibly suspensions and 
clubs going into the Asian Champions League looking to strengthen. If you can loan a player from now till the end of the season and add them to your Champions League roster, how that works, they'd have to work through it. Who, whose salary cap it impacts? Is there loan fees? They're all things you need to step through. But I definitely think it, it needs to be um, addressed. Oh, Terry, well, um, thanks so much for your for your time and um, good luck this week against uh, the Phoenix where I think Andrew Duranta will actually break the um, A-League uh, record. Uh, it will take over f- over from uh, former Sydney FC player Danny Vukovic. So uh, yeah, special I'm night for Jura and uh, uh, that, that won't matter anyhow because uh, sentiments don't matter in football. It's all about the three <laughs> points. <laughs> That's it. Now, Jura's a, he's a great man. He's played for Sydney FC as well. and There'll be a a little bit pointy for him to, to celebrate his 279 game um, in Sydney in front of his family as well. So, uh, not the game, Tony. We're we're really looking forward to. The boys are they're ready, uh, and uh, be good to get back to the Fortress Alliance again and um, get another three points. Terrific! Thanks for joining us tonight uh, on the Football Bosses, Terry McFlynn. No worries. Thanks, boys. Here comes the money. Here we go. Brought to you by DKP and Co. Chartered Accountants and Aspire Planning Group. Football Bosses with Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata on FNR Football Nation Radio. Welcome back to the Football Bosses. Uh, Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata with you and. Uh, well, one of the big scandals to rock football over the last few years has been the uh, FIFA and the president, uh, Sepp, former president Sepp Blatter, uh, well, paying the ultimate price for uh, a whole range of controversies. And one woman who's been uh, at the centre of exposing some of the goings on, but behind the closed doors of FIFA, is the former head of corporate affairs at Football Federation Australia, and she's been doing some great work uh, over the last few years in uh, well unveiling some of these secrets that uh, the football world and the general business world have, have been shocked to read about. Uh, her name is Benita Mercedes. She joins us on the line now. Benita, thanks for joining us. That's a pleasure. Thank you. And Benita, of course, uh, you're about to launch uh, a new book which uh, focuses on some of these issues and uh, some of these issues we've been uh, reading about uh, in the last few days with some uh, some excerpts from your book. Um, can you tell us what shocked you most about uh, about this whole process? Of course, you were at uh, the FFA when the the bid process for the World Cup was uh, occurring, and uh, obviously you stood up to some of the things that you were seeing there, and and uh, and it all developed from from that point on. Oh gosh, it's hard to know what's the worst. <laughs> Um, I think while I was still working there, the worst was just the, just so that the way that our consultants behaved. Um, I always thought, and I said this time after time, that we ran a reputational risk by having those consultants engaged by our bid and paying them what we ended up paying them, which is around about a third of our total bid money. Um, and I think what's been worse since I left, but more importantly in terms of the book, um, the second half of the book is is really about what I've learned since. And it's really just the lengths that people in the football world who work in football, who are involved in football, will go to to get what they want, hence the title, whatever it takes. Um, they will do whatever it takes to get what they see as being a victory. And this is relevant to a whole lot of people within the book. It's not just the Australian bid or the Qataris or Set Blatter, but you, know, you could basically tick a box on all of those. Um, and what it reminds me of is, and hence the dedication in my book is for real football people everywhere, the people now involved in football, wherever it is, they're not real football people anymore because they've long ago lost what football is all about. Talk to us about seven years ago when you uh, wrote the first chapter of the book. I read an article last night where you said, uh, I had to stop it just because of everything else that was going around and, uh, and some of the threats that, that came your way. Yes, that's right. I mean, I wrote the first draft more as a cathartic exercise um, after I left and, and also because Andrew Jennings, who is, you know, basically the oracle of FIFA corruption, kept saying to me, write it down, what you've experienced, write it down, you know, so you don't forget it. And I did that. Um, but then when I published some excerpts from it in 2012, um, I, you know, a number of things happened, a number of threats happened, including from FSA. Um, they threatened me, they threatened my family. 
um, as well as, you know, the usual cyber attacks that you get. Uh, and I say usual because they're sort of periodic and regular when it comes to this whole space um, of dealing with FIFA corruption. And I, I basically put the manuscript in a drawer and thought, okay, um, one, day my, uh, one day I'll die and one of my kids will clear out my desk door and find it and that's where it would go. But then a number of things happened which basically led me to, to, led me to pick it up again and, and start looking at what else was going on. Bonita, well done on, on the book. Um, I know we've had you know, discussions over the last few years about the book and you know your workings on it, and so it's, it's good to see it's finally uh, finally out there. But uh, just going back to these three consultants that um, FFA hired at the time, um, why why did they? Why what was their purpose? What did they do? Um, they surely didn't get us votes because we only got one vote. Uh, what was their uh, mandate? And and who approved? them to uh, to be uh, you know hired um, yeah thanks Tony for the comments yes we have had discussions in the past and I actually acknowledge you in the acknowledgement so thank you um, well I mean the consultants were engaged uh, the then chairman of FSA wanted them to be involved in the bid um, to be fair to Ben Buckley uh, he had concerns about that um, he and as did I and when I was first heard about the three consult or two of the consultants in particular, um, you know, I was asked to do a bit of uh, research on them, and it wasn't very hard to find, you know, what their background was like. I think the role consultants play in the whole bidding process and played in the bidding process um, was one of courtesans. They'd sort of, you know, race around the court of FIFA, uh, bit doing what people in charge or in power wanted them to do. What they also did was give bidders plausible deniability. So, you know, when you read things like um, Garcia report where he might report, and I'm not just talking about Australia here but other bidders as well, where he might report that, well, Russia said they didn't have a conversation with that person. No, they probably didn't. That's probably true. The consultants would. So that's what they did. They provided that cover. So when I've talked about in the past and in the book the deals and the double deals and the counter deals, that was usually conducted by the consultants. Okay. And um, and were they ever in Australia or they did they ever come for meetings at FFA headquarters or was always sort of they were sort of based overseas and never never ventured in the Australian shores? Uh, in the time that I was involved, Fedor Radman certainly never came to Australia. Uh, Peter Hagatai did um, once or twice. Abold made regular visits, and of the three consultants, Abold was the person who I guess was the front man of the three of them. He was, you know, the, the marketing, supposedly the marketing guru. But as I say in the book, you know, any anyone who's involved, quite frankly, in the A League or even in NPL clubs and in state federations who knows a bit about marketing will know there was no guru about the marketing that he did. Um, but he he came to Australia a lot because he was responsible for the, for the bid book, the technical inspection and the final presentation, all of which he also said absolutely didn't count when it came to the vote. I mean, we, we spent £9 million, which is around about, I don't know, about £20 million Aussie, out of the the fifty odd million, that's a hell of a lot to pay three consultants nearly, you know, forty percent of the uh, total uh, budget. Wouldn't you have thought? Yeah, it was. I mean, in that amount included some of the uh, costs, which, for instance, Abold would have um, incurred as part of his role. Um, but his, you know, all up, they got around fifteen million Australian dollars uh, between the three of them. And you know what I try to show in the book is that at least around some of that money there are still it's still not clear exactly how come they got that much because when you look back at original budgets and that sort of thing that included amounts for uh, bonuses which <laughs> presumably weren't payable considering we didn't win mm. it's one thing to uh, pay a consultant a bonus if we win but on one lousy vote I don't think so um, so there are still some basic questions to answer around that. And I, I think, you know, from if you're a member of Football Federation Australia, if you're a State Federation uh, president or if you're the A-League clubs, you would, you would be or you should be asking questions about some of the issues that are raised there. Especially the, the government, because they contributed a, a lot of that 50-odd million, didn't they, to, uh, to the whole uh, World Cup bid 
So. Yeah, I mean, the government, you know, they, they're both the, the current government and the previous government, I think they've sort of thought, you know, in the great scheme of things, $50 million isn't so much of a concern to them. And then particularly when, you know, you've got uh, the relationship between the government and the opposition, the existing government, the existing opposition, and, and for instance, um, the chairman of FFA or the person who was the chairman of FFA, I think they just prefer to sort of let it all go away. Um but yes, there, there are. You, you think any sort of basic auditor would would be interested in some of those issues? That's for sure. One of the things that I suppose grates on uh, on football people and uh, in, in seeing some of this come out, uh, Benita, is the way that uh, you know our game was was treated in this country. And uh, uh, quotes from Sepp Blatter uh, to you, uh, according to reports, were that you know we never had a chance and uh, we could never compete from a broadcast perspective uh, due to time zones, um, but not financials. I mean, if we look at uh, previous World Cups, there have been previous World Cups held in our time zone in Japan and in South Korea. Uh, but reading between the lines, this really is about uh, the broadcast rights and uh, be in sports, of course, uh, with, with links to Qatar, um, uh, are said to have paid uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to get these, th- these rights over the line. Yeah, it's a really interesting response. I think what Blatter was saying is, is basically Japan and Korea didn't make as much money for them as they would have liked it to. So I, I think that's what he was saying. Um, we were told back in July 2009 that we wouldn't be competitive because of that very reason. And I, I you know, I would expect, um, and it, my understanding is that the Qataris were also told that. The difference is then what each country did about addressing that issue. And, and we were also... That was also reinforced to us by one of the executive committee members in October 2009, which I talk about in the book. What we did was commissioned research to show that um, Asia was the fastest growing area for revenue, TV revenue growth in football. Uh, and that was all very nice. What did Qatar do? Well, their state-owned broadcaster um, took a very practical approach and made sure that they were commercially competitive by saying well, here's a $100 million, and I put this in inverted commas, production contribution if the World Cup is held in Qatar. That's a difference. And, of course, the question is, well, who were we all trying to be competitive with? There was only one country in 2022 who, you know, when McKinsey's did a report on the commercial viability of all of those nine bidders in that process, um, there was only one country in the 2022 lot who were 100%, and that's the USA. So it's just, um, uh, I guess it's, an, it's a difference in the approach of the two countries and uh, I'm not really sure what Japan and Korea did about that, uh, although I am certainly aware that Korea, at uh, Hyundai um, reinv- or renewed their agreement with FIFA up until 2022, just close to the vote. But, you know, I guess that's immaterial. How does uh, this uh, make Frank Frank Lowy look uh, out of all of this? He obviously uh, led uh, the bid. He uh, came in at the start of the A-League and, and reinvigorated our sport. Uh, and, and we've spoken uh, a lot about his uh, input into our sport and, and his exit from our sport. But at the time he led this bid, he was the one that uh, lobbied government to, to get behind it. And uh, I'm told in, in reading some articles in the last week that uh, he himself launched, he took this so personally, he launched an investigation uh, into how this could have occurred. Um, and that investigation didn't really uncover uh, any uh, corruption on, on behalf of the, the Qataris. No, I mean, there's a couple, there's a few things about that question, Michael. Um, first of all, I don't think that you can um, question Frank Lowy's contribution to the game in the period from you know 2003 onwards when he was brought back into the game, and you know got it helped get us into Asia. Um, laid the foundation for us to qualify for 2006, established the A-League, all of those sorts of things. So there's been a, a huge number of credits on his side. I, I guess the issue around the World Cup bid, um, it, uh, and I think probably uh, he and I once had this discussion and I said that he needed to confront um, the conduct of that bid and learn some lessons from it. I, don't, I think that's a bit that hasn't been done. It's one thing to have a dream and to want to host the World Cup. I mean, 
I would, I would love Australia to host the World Cup. I think we'd be fantastic. But um, you also have to be realistic about that and what the chances are. Um, and I, I think he just failed to read the tea leaves on it. You know, when you've got Blatter saying to me that we are never, ever going to win, and when we were actually told that through, you know, a short time into the process, uh, I, I, we should have taken notice of those lessons, particularly when we're using taxpayers' money. So, but, you know, that, that has to be balanced with everything else that he's achieved. But uh, like all of us, you know, we all get things wrong sometimes and we do need to be able to learn the lesson from it. Now, in the article I read last night, it said that it wasn't Franz Beckenbauer who gave us the vote. It was actually Sepp Blatter um, that gave us that the, the one vote. Um, yeah, that, that's quite surprising, if, if, if true. Oh, well, that's what Seth Blatter has said, and he, he said it previously, too, on, on other things. Um, and the explanation he gave to me as to why he was our one vote is very plausible. I mean, anyone who was around in Australian football in the 90s will have come across Corinne Blatter, who worked for yeah. then Soccer Australia. And she loves Australia. She still visits Australia. She has friends here. Um, she has workmates here. So when Seth said to me... Um, that if he that his daughter wanted him to vote for Australia and he couldn't look her in the face if he didn't, I actually think that's very, you know we're all parents. <laughs> mm. um, we all probably say the same thing about our own children um, if they wanted something like that. He also added that he knew we weren't going to get a vote and he didn't want us to be without a vote. And for all of Gladys' fault um, and for all that he's presided over, he presided over FISA for the best part of 35 years and. and best turned a blind eye to what was going on. Um, he's actually quite a kind and gentle and humorous person, just underneath all of those other things that are going on in his uh, personality as well. So I think that's quite plausible. And I was also interested to read that uh, he knew full well that uh, we weren't going to win it and that uh, the USA, who were the favourites for the bid, weren't going to win it. And uh, he made a personal phone call to the president at, at the time, uh, President Obama, to say that uh, they were going to miss out. Yes, he did. And he said straight out that he wanted the US to win. And I think that gets back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the commercial viability of the World Cup. They made it very, FIFA made it very clear to all the bidders when they brought us together in Zurich the first time that the World Cup had to make enough money to fund all their operations for the next four years. Um, that, you know, whether it be the Women's World Cup, the youth tournaments, beach soccer, uh, their ordinary operations. So they made that quite clear that that was important to them. But the problem with what they did is when you look at the criteria that they set, the bidding guidelines, that wasn't included in the bidding guidelines. And in a sense, what FIFA should have done was made it clear there's nothing wrong with an organisation that runs a marquee event like that saying we need this to cover our, uh, our costs for the next four years. That's perfectly understandable, but they should have made that clear to bidders because then that would have automatically knocked out... You know, some bidders might have self-selected then and said, OK, we're not going to make a billion dollars or whatever it is they need, um, so we won't be competitive in that process. That, of course, then raises other questions about what the World, World Cup is about. Is it about um, funding FIFA's operations or is it about trying to bring the world closer together through taking this fantastic tournament to different parts of the world? Yeah, I think it's um, that whole bidding process, and I know I've spoken to a lot of people, it's, it's really left a sour taste uh, in everyone's mouth. Um, just the way it went, um, you know, just, just getting one vote, you know, Qatar of all places. And, and look, it could be a, a great World Cup, but, um, you know, they've, they've had to now change the, uh, uh, the timing of it. You know, usually World Cup's in, in July. I think it's going to be in, in January uh, 2022. It's going to disrupt all the leagues around the world, including the A-League, um, given we qualify. Uh, won't impact Italy because they might not qualify again. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's just uh, just disappointing. And uh, were we naive, Benita, of, of actually thinking we had a chance? Because I know a few times that you know, hearing Frank and or Ben speaking, that they felt that they had enough votes to to win the uh, World Cup. Yeah, they did, and that was very clear in the. Um you know, documentary, I use that term loosely, that was on the ABC in November 2015, um, where they filmed 
in real time counting their votes and they thought they had seven votes going into the, as as FIFA was in FIFA headquarters and FIFA executive were in FIFA headquarters voting they thought they had seven votes um, so yes we were naive um, we were no doubt misled by the consultants um, and I, you know I think you know anyone who met the consultants <laughs> would see that these they were people who were not going to deliver what they were promising um, now, were they just taking our money and running? Um, were they were they sort of so t completely out of touch with what was going on in FIFA? I mean, I think they're questions that people have to answer for themselves. The only point I would make is, you know, someone like Peter Hargitay continues to be employed within FIFA, or certainly his, his son does, um, within football. Um, so, you know, uh, they sold themselves to us or to Frank in particular, Frank Lowy in particular, um, as being so well attuned to uh, what was going on within the FIFA Executive Committee for having close contact with Mohammed bin Hamam, with Sepp Blatter, with Jack Warner, with Franz Beckenbauer. And yet, supposedly, um, even the night that the voting was happening, when FFA or you know, Lowy and Buckley thought we had seven votes in the bag in the first round, uh, it was just so way off being. But Ida, one of the things I suppose we can only hope for out of all of this is that uh, the game changes for the good. We've seen some change at FIFA in the last few years. Of course, Sepp Blatter is no longer there running the sport. Uh, but has the change gone far enough and, and uh, how much further can you see it uh, progressing uh, for the good of the sport in the, in the short term? Yeah, I think that is the key, Michael, is that FIFA, in, you know, we talk about how we need to look at our own conduct and learn from that, but so does FIFA. Um, FIFA made mistakes, not just in terms of the personnel, but in terms of, you know, the point I mentioned earlier, if commercial competitiveness is important, then they should say that so people know. I think the most disappointing aspect, or there's a lot of disappointing aspects in relation to FIFA, but one of the ones in relation to this is the fact that they haven't really properly examined what went on. Um, they allowed Russia to get away with the fact that they supposedly leased their computers and now they've been thrown out and they don't have any data. I mean, this is a country that put a dog in the moon in 1957 and yet they say they don't know how to back up data from computers. And so they've just never had to answer any questions. Spain and Portugal, um, at which there was, you know, very, very uh, strong rumours that they colluded with Qatar. Um, but they just refused to talk to, to Garcia and nothing's ever been done about it. Um, while you can hope that the authorities who are looking at these issues, such as um, the US, the Swiss, the French, um, do sort of deal with it eventually, um, they've got a very time-consuming process. Meanwhile, um, many people involved with the bidding process of 2018 and 2022 brought football into disrepute. Um, they broke the FIFA ethics rules. Um, they uh, have not ever been brought to account for it. And as football people, getting back to the dedication in my book, as real football people, we should be calling people to account. They should be made to uh, justify their actions and to take an appropriate, um, I guess, penalty out of what what they did. Because football, uh, while the world, while football's um, uh, the FIFA way, as I term it, had been going on for some time. The bidding process brought that into sharp relief. Everybody noticed it then. Um, and since that time, you know, football's taken a while to recover from all of that. And they've still got a way to go. Benita, did when you interviewed Sepp, was there any remorse uh, from him in, in the way he conducted, his organisation conducted over the years? I mean, because, you know, Sepp, Sepp's gone, uh, Jerome's gone, Franz Beckenbauer, Platini. I mean, it's, the list goes on and on. Uh, Jack Warner. Um, it's an absolute disgrace, these, these guys, what, what they've done to the sport. And uh, did, did Sepp say anything that would show that he felt any remorse at all or he just sort of thought it was just status quo? Um, no, I think he felt a bit sorry that he's no longer there. Um I don't think he understands that, as I, as I said earlier, at best he turned a blind eye to everything that was going on. At worst, 
he was involved in himself. Many people who were close to him, in fact, everybody who was close to him, and he has very loyal supporters, that many people say he wasn't corrupt himself. And in part, that's probably because he paid himself so much he didn't really need to be corrupt. And all his expenses were met. You know, he had a fee for apartment, he had a chauffeured limousine, he had private jet uh, or first-class travel. So he didn't have sort of many expenses and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I don't think he... You know, he still will not take responsibility for what he calls the devils in football, um, even though he was either the CEO or the president for 35 years. Bernina, fascinating uh, conversation. We uh, we won't keep you any longer. We know you've got plenty to do. And uh, just just to remind us, uh, the the book, uh, whatever it takes, uh, will be uh, publicly available on the fifth of February. Uh, I think I've got that right. And uh, and you can purchase it online or or in any uh, good bookstores. That's right. It's available online through Amazon or through uh, Fair Play Publishing as well. Well, wish you all the best uh, with the book, and I know you've said uh, that the you know, proceeds of, of the book will go to the uh, the, the Pararoos, um, which is a, a terrific uh, gesture, and uh, we thank you so much uh, for putting so many years of effort into um, exposing uh, some of the bad elements in our game, and hopefully for, for the betterment of our game in the future. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, Benita. Benita Murciades uh, joining us on Football Bosses here on FNR. We'll be back to wrap things up uh, and plenty more coming up after this. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Brought to you by DKP and Co. Chartered Accountants and Aspire Planning Group. Football Bosses with Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata on FNR Football Nation Radio. Welcome back to the Football Bosses here on FNR. We've just about run out of time, Tony, but uh, fascinating conversation uh, with Terry McFlynn earlier, but uh, just recently with uh, Benita Merciades. Uh, it's must-read. Uh, I'll be uh, heading uh, on to Amazon to order my copy, uh, available on the 5th of February. And all proceeds go to the Peru, so um, it's a good cause. Good on her for doing it. It uh, exposes a lot of what has been bad about our sport over the years, but as I said to her, uh, and as we said earlier, uh, hopefully it uh, helps reform uh, and provide some solutions to a better way forward for us. Yeah, look, I, I think a lot of the um, you know the corruption is at the FIFA level. I, I don't think the FFA... I think the FFA were probably too naive um, to believe that... You know, Australia is a squeaky, sort of clean sort of um, country and we, we believe everything's out in the open and on board. Um, but you know you could, you could see that what's happened there, and, and all the the main players uh, at FIFA, you know, you have Michelle Platini, your Franz Beckenbauer, Sepp Blatter, Jeremy Volkomes, who was the uh, Secretary General, have all been indicted. You Jack Warner, who headed up uh, one of the uh, associations as well. Um, so I think the FFA were a bit naive, thinking that they could go in and, and do the best and do a good book and a good video and get Al McPherson um, out there and and win the uh, the bid and. Uh, one vote. And the Prime Minister at the time too. Yes. Julia Gillard was yeah. appeared in the video. Yeah, with the little hopping kangaroo. Yeah. So um well oh, cringe. But um anyway, look, uh, I think we've learnt a lot and we certainly won't be doing another bid, but I hope it doesn't deter the FFA from going for the women's World Cup, uh, which would be fantastic for uh, for the sport. Thank you to all of our guests. Thanks again, uh, Tony, for uh, coming into the studio. And we look forward to doing it all again next week. From me, Michael Zapponi, and Tony Pinata. it's goodbye from the football bosses. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Brought to you by DKP and Co. Chartered Accountants and Aspire Planning Group. Football bosses with Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata on FNR Football Nation Radio.